Welcome to the Next Step Podcast with Jay and Brad. Wait, wait, I'm Brad. I'm Jay. I'm an All act. Right. All right. Jay, this is a special podcast. Well, of course it is, Brad. Every episode is special. Um, nice voice. Thanks. We're going to do no news on this one. There's no need for news because this is a little bit of a longer, different Longer one. I, I, I called it the Next Step Podcast Town Hall. I don't know why. Just because it sounds I like good. it. It sounds good. We had it, well, basically a town hall style. It was a town hall style meeting. We spoke on a panel. You want to mm-hmm. explain? Yep. So we uh, were invited to a friend's house in uh, Laguna Beach who can... You have regular get-togethers, uh, in, enrichment gatherings where they invite. The, they have a beautiful home, um, big, big beautiful home where they've got the facility to host large groups of people. Yeah. And they've had artists and authors and poets uh, come to town to share their expertise. Yep. Yeah. And they asked us, along with another gentleman named Victor, to come and share. Victor is not a member of the church, but he is a, a longtime AA. Uh, he's in the program of AA. Yeah. And we, you, we mentioned this thing called the Canyon Club. I'll link it in the show notes. But it's one of the biggest uh, world-renowned a, world AA uh, clubs. It's on Laguna Canyon Road in Laguna Beach. It's got its own building. Uh, it's paid for by donations. And there's probably a meeting there every hour on the hour. And uh, I've mentioned going to there uh, one time. But it's a big, beautiful building in Laguna Canyon Road. You wouldn't even know what it is except for a triangle, that tri- the AA triangle um, that's right outside off the yeah. main road. Um, but, again, it's, it's a beautiful building, and a, and a lot of recovery happens there. And, and so Victor shares. You share. I share. We talk about uh, uh, our stories and our history. And the audience is a mix of members of the church and non-members of the church. Um, and then we have a Q&A. And a Q&A at the end that I think is very valuable. So we're just going to post that right after this. If you're waiting for a regular Ask the Attic, this is not it. And we're not going to do any boring news or surf report. So we're just going to go right into it. There's no surf anyways. There was last week. A little bit. Yeah, but not, not this week. Not enough to talk it's about. It's like a Lake Pacific right now. Lake okay. Pacifica. But that's it. So enjoy uh, this thing and let us know if it's something you like. And Matt, here you go. Yeah, thank you. Let's hear it for Taylor Cannon. If you don't mind, I think I'm going to try to sit for this. I hurt my back a little while ago, and standing is the most painful thing for me right now. So, um, so I'm going to try this from a sitting position, not looking for your sympathy. Um, <laughs> and uh, well, it is true that at one time, once I was uh, accused of being my my brother's son, I am truly just his younger brother. <laughs> less successful, less handsome, but way more charming. A much better person at the end of the day. More humble, too. Yeah, a little more humble. <laughs> oh, right, like a good little brother. Um, I appreciate Taylor and Tammy having us here tonight, though, for this. This has been a passion of mine for the last couple of years as I've been involved with addiction recovery. And... Uh, and so she's given us this uh, forum tonight. And if any of you have been to these forums before, you I don't want you to panic that the the, we've, the bar has fallen substantially. Um, luckily for you, I am not here to speak to you tonight, just rather to kind of MC. Um, but I've brought some of my good friends who have far more experience in this than I do uh, to share their stories. And ultimately, that's all we want to do is to share our stories. 
and, and to share amongst ourselves, to have a conversation um, about a topic that needs to happen, needs to be a, a conversation that's happening more often, frankly, than it, than it really is. And that's, that's been my experience. As I got involved, I realized uh, how um, much more we need to be focused on this particular topic. Um, so, um, <clears throat> so, and Taylor said it right, I think at the end of the day, addiction affects all of us. Uh, and, and it does that in different ways. It may affect us personally, um, or it's, it's through those in our network, our loved ones that are in our network. Um, but at the end of the day, it does affect all of us uh, in our own way, and it's a painful um, topic um, at times to discuss. Uh, and so our objective tonight is to have you leave with a message of hope. Um, knowing that, that we have a Father in Heaven who will reach down and help us up and bring us uh, to a better place. Um, and so uh, I thought maybe the very first thing we ought to do, and, I, and rather than give you like a clinical approach to this, one thing I noticed as I was mingling with people is there are a lot of experts in this room. Some of you are very close to this and professionally so, uh, of which I'm not. I run a tech company. What do I know about this? Uh, and so, but what I thought I'd do is maybe just ask the room, uh, when you think about addiction, what does come to mind? Maybe from a definition standpoint first, what is addiction? Like, a, like an allergy, it starts, like, like it's, a, it's a thinking problem, and then, oh, I just got like so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, why did I raise my hand? <laughs> um, I know for myself, I'm in recovery, and I know that mine is like a thinking problem, but then the minute I have substance of any kind, I have that, they call it the phenomenon of craving, and I don't react the same way that, you know, other normal people would, and then it becomes an obsession. What have you done to deserve your allergy? What have I done to deserve it? And I, I meant that to be facetious. Poor me, poor me, I deserve it. <laughs> don't you know? So, go ahead, yes. Well, addiction, if you go back to the Latin, means to be enslaved. Enslaved. When one person is enslaved to another, they are addicted. That's the Latin word. Very interesting. I bring that up because one of the analogies that I, that I often talk about is a bee sting, right? How many people are in here allergic to bees? Anybody? One, two, one back in the back. One in the back. Right? So, same question. You know, what have you done to, be, uh, to deserve being allergic to bees? For, for this gentleman in the back, if he gets stung by a bee, he dies. And the rest of us brush it off. Right? The same is the case here. That, that was kind of my question there, is what have you done to deserve it? The answer is nothing, right? This is, you know, and there are clinical definitions. There are many different ways to define addiction. But at the end of the day, our physiology, our background, nature versus nurture, whatever it is that make us up is different for all of us. And how substances and behaviors affect us is different. And, and so, uh, but so is the treatment. I was just talking to a gentleman who's got a rehab program that's extremely successful. I'm part of uh, the uh, Latter-day Saint Addiction Recovery Program, and that's where my experience comes from. I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I run addiction recovery program on Wednesday nights in Mission Viejo uh, and have for the last few years, and that's my exposure. I'm not an addict in recovery. Uh, and so... But yet, in that process and in that experience, I've seen, and in that program, in that general addiction program, it isn't just alcoholics or just uh, drug addicts. It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's like a Guns N' Roses concert. <laughs> Pornography, food, 
um, any and all types of addiction that, that come into that program. And what's been interesting to me in that is understanding the commonality of all of that, that ultimately it isn't about the vice. It isn't about how you act out. I had a guy named Al in my program, and he said, I thought for years that alcohol was my problem, and it turns out Al was my problem. <laughs> I thought that was really interesting and, and true, right? That, that at the end of the day, it's the underlying causes that, that cause people to, to act in the way that they do that recovery is attempting to focus on and to, to bring out. Um, <clears throat> I heard it. Uh, there's a TED Talk that's, that's fairly familiar to a lot of people in this space uh, where uh, a British journalist talked about the opposite of addiction. So I asked what addiction is. What's the opposite of addiction? Anyone recall what that TED Talk said? Connectivity. Connectivity. What did he mean by that? The opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's connectivity or connection. What does that mean? I think we live in a, in a world right now, in a time where people are growing more and more disconnected, and it's built into our genetics, it's built into everything about us that we need each other, and because we're growing more disconnected, uh, people are getting sicker, and then the, that, the symptom is addiction. So addiction's not even really the problem, it's what happens when people lose connection with each other. So if you can reconnect them to themselves, each other, to nature, to God, yeah. then and what notoriously do addicts do when they are deep into they their addiction? They isolate, right? And yeah, go ahead. Well, and then the problem with that is that when you isolate, parts of the brain that are responsible for human connection start to atrophy. So the prefrontal cortex has nine functions that are all critical for the ability for me to interact with you, connect with you. And when those start to weaken, it just creates a vicious cycle and it gets worse and worse. <coughs> to where a person ends up becoming sicker and sicker and then they go farther into isolation and farther atrophies and the likelihood of them coming out of that becomes um, lessened. Like I said, there are people in this room <laughs> far more qualified than me. <laughs> you guys nervous yet? <laughs> Thank you very much. It's spot on. Uh, and, and what I love about that and even about hearing about his program, the science, the understanding of addiction, the treatment for addiction is evolving, right? Um, and so, so must the conversation. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're known for clean living. Mormons don't have this problem, right? We don't drink, we don't smoke, you know, all of the above, right? Maybe that's not entirely true. <laughs> As I've come to know, especially in this program, turns out Mormons aren't, addic aren't immune from the allergy, right? Um, none of us are at the end of the day. Uh, and so, but what, but what I've discovered in our, in our um, culture of my religion is that there's an added level of stigma, it feels like, um, with admitting that you have a problem. Because we don't have that problem. We go to church on Sunday and we're dressed as well as Victor is. Uh, <laughs> and we're looking at put together. Yeah, maybe actually not quite. <laughs> I thought I was going to wear my tie, but I didn't want it to get wet in the rain. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we put on our best dress on Sunday, we come to church, everything looks great. When in fact, at the end of the day, we all have problems in varying degrees. And the more common and authentic we can be with each other with those problems, the more we can help each other through this connection. In fact, if I had it my way, this room would be set up in a circle. If you've ever been to a 12-step meeting before, we don't like this 
one-way approach. Hey, I did my <laughs> <laughs> But there's too many of you, and, we, and she did her best. Seven hours. She, she, yeah, she filled the room. It's a great problem. That wasn't meant to be critical. It's a great problem that there are too many of us. So I've talked far, far too long. Um, but what our hope tonight is, again, a message of hope, of healing, um, of love at the end of the day. By the way, the quote from this gentleman that talked about connection, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. It's all that will help you in the end. If you are alone, you cannot escape addiction. If you are loved, you have a chance. And ultimately, that's what it boils down to at the end of the day is love. We've got to knock the shame off. We have to knock the stigma off. And we have to be willing to, to have the conversations. And so our hope is that you carry the conversation with you tonight. So with that all said, let me introduce our panel. Um, and and our, our approach tonight, our thought was to have uh, Brad and Jay and Victor share their stories with you. Um, and again, if, if you feel prompted to raise your hand and ask a question, great. If, if not, at the end, we will have a Q&A, and we want to make sure that that is um, uh, helpful for you to ask any and all questions. If you've been to a 12-step meeting, you know that anything goes. Um, the difference with this in a 12-step meeting, though, is typically what you say there stays there. But I have two recording devices up here. <laughs> now, they are only audio, <laughs> so no one will know your name, but I want that to be understood that... There were people who couldn't make it here tonight who wanted to be a part of this and asked that we um, give them a chance to hear, hear this later. The other recording device, this thing that I'm not even sure what that is, um, is, is part of Brad and Jay's podcast called The Next Step. And Brad and Jay have a, a weekly podcast that they do um, on the topic of addiction. Uh, and, and so they want be able to be able to broadcast this on their podcast. Over 100,000 people have heard their podcast that they just started a year ago. How long has it been? A little two. A little two? Okay, two. It's awesome. Anyway, let me give you a little bit of background. Brad, lifelong resident of Laguna Niguel, where, where uh, back when it was referred to as South Laguna. Who remembers that before my time? Uh, he's, he's been married to his wife, Julie, for 24 years, has four children. He founded and is headmaster of the Tesla Academy, a private college prep high school in Irvine, founder and co-host of the Next Step podcast with Jay to his right. Uh, he, uh, he shapes surfboards in his free time and competes with his son in the Western Surf Association, where he's currently ranked seventh. A bad for old guy. <laughs> it's it's old guy division. <laughs> okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> so Brad happens to run the Laguna Niguel Addiction Recovery Program for our church. And Brad's the one who called me three and a half years ago and said, Matt, this thing's changed my life. You need to get involved and, and, and do the same, and it has. And so I thank Brad for getting me roped into this. By the way, if there's only one thing you need to remember about Brad, it's that um, for, since he got his driver's license when he was 16, he's driven a Toyota pickup truck with the license plate Bradical. <laughs> Still has that plate today. He's committed. He's committed. <laughs> so my friend Jay. And Jay and Victor are the true heroes here for being willing to break anonymity and to share their stories um, with, with you all. Um, I met Jay as I came to Brad's meeting for the first time and was totally floored um, by Jay and his story. And so I've asked him to share his story. Um, 
he uh, a, is a lover of surfing, camping, and all things outdoors. Um, studied uh, at LDS Business College in a BYU Hawaii, and is married to his beautiful wife Lexi and their three children. Uh, he's coming up on six years of sobriety. It's awesome. Yeah. And my friend Victor, having hailed from the great USC. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> sing it. I won't sing it. <laughs> uh, successful businessman and an philanthropist who sits on several boards, not the least of which is Hogue, uh, on Hogue Hospital, um, very involved with mental and behavioral health uh, there. President of this very homeowners association, as I understand, right? Yes. For those of you that are in the neighborhood. Your neighbors are being too loud. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> oh, don't call me. <laughs> um, the most active uh, man I've ever known in AA. I, I heard the other day that he's sponsoring over 50 people right now, which I don't know what else he does in his life. Um, that is a full-time job and a half. So, no further ado, Brad, will you start us off? Yeah, I want to know why we're not calling that person on the higher brain. Like, who's that? <laughs> there you go. I know, like professional brainstorming here. genius. Should we just put them on speakerphones? Yeah. Yeah. Him or her? Um, so I feel very uh, underqualified for this. I'm what they call a normie in, uh, in the program, in the 12-step program. And I guess uh, my message is that even if you are not in recovery or personally haven't been uh, afflicted with the, the gene or, the, or the, uh, the attraction to it, you can still be of help. And that, uh, I, I didn't feel that way for a long time. So probably like most of you, um, I grew up here my whole life. I, a lot of familiar faces, I've heard of your names, but... So I've grown up in the same area my whole life. Um, I've lost many of family and friends to addiction, and that and and lost many, see many families broke up, and generations destroyed because of it, and felt very hopeless about it. What do I do? I mean, just don't do it. Like my normie brain's like, well, you're an idiot. Why are you just stop? Like I can stop. I can stop when I'm full or this or that. Like why can't you stop? Um, and and. I felt very helpless in being able to help. Um, and it, that changed, uh, how many years ago did you move in, Jay? Five. So five years ago, Jay and Lexi moved into our neighborhood and met him and, and we had a surfing thing in common and we attended the same congregation in common. And Jay broke anonymity, it's called, and he shared about uh, his addiction. And he said, if anyone uh, is struggling or has questions, please come talk to me. And, and in the in the Mormon, we're not supposed to say Mormon, we're members of the Church of Christ Latter-day Saints. In, in the church, that's very rare. You know, we don't, in, in most church congregations, you, you, you know, you put your best dress on and you don't air your dirty laundry. And that that is no different in our church congregation. And so when he didn't air your dirty laundry, he just said, hey, I went through this tough time. And if you are going through the same thing or know someone, come talk to me. And so... I didn't talk to him about that at first. We just went surfing. And on the way to Trestles, uh, I like to ask a lot of questions. Yeah? So I don't know what you thought, but I was just like, after we got through what boards and this and that, and where you like to surf, or are you goofy foot or regular foot, and blah, blah, blah. I started what, asking What rank are you? Yeah, what rank? Yeah, what rank are you? Uh, not not rank. <laughs> so uh, uh, I just started asking him a million questions. And one of the, and at the end of it, he's like, 
why don't you just come to this 12-step meeting that, I, that he talked about that was in San Clemente, California. And I remember hearing about a, uh, one person in particular that had, who had struggled with uh, an opiate problem, who had uh, unsuccess, was still struggling with it, but had mentioned going to this meeting, like years prior. I'm like, could it the same meeting? He's like, I have no idea. And at the time, there was only five to eight, five eight. To eight people. Yeah, eight was like a big night. Um, when I went there, it was probably ten. Yeah, so you were at the... Started to peek up there, okay. So I went, and this is my first 12-step meeting. I, like most of you, uh, TV shows and music. You know, like, I see him on, uh, I wrote down so I remember, there's t like House of Cards in Nashville, like The Circle, uh, what's the guy's name on Nashville? Uh, Julie, you're a big fan? I don't know. Like the guy she ended up marrying at the end, right? Yeah. Like he's always going to A meetings, right? Like, I gotta go to a meeting. He just like leave and go to a meeting. And I was like, That's, I don't understand that, but I'd see it, but I didn't understand it. So I asked questions, you know, Macklemore singing about it, and Eminem, and um, <laughs> Aerosmith's got quite a few songs. Uh, he really did ask these questions. <laughs> I literally did. I'm like, I don't like, so explain to me. He's like, why don't you just come to this meeting with me? I'm like, all right, sure. And then I'm in the parking lot, like, what the crap am I doing? Like, what, people gonna think I'm an addict? Like, what? I mean, like, what's the problem? Like, this is weird. My wife, I don't even know if I told my wife I was going to a meeting. Is that? I think so. Okay? And she probably was like, why are you going to this meeting? You're curious. Um, and so I went, and like, I say my mind exploded. It was just my spiritual mind was just awakened. And I was like, wow. And, and I probably had a lot more questions after that. One of, and the biggest wow is at the end of one of my education, and I met this beautiful girl at the end of one of the meetings, the first couple meetings, and she was asking questions about getting her college essays uh, fine-tuned out. She was applying for BYU, and she was in uh, early 20, like 21, 22, yeah. and, I was, and I was like, wow, is she recovering? And I was like, gee, what's the story? She's like, she was a prostitute in downtown Long Beach a year ago selling her body to get drugs. Heroin. Heroin. And I was like, <clears throat> and she got into BYU, and I think she's graduated. And married. Yeah, Mary graduated. And, and you, I was like, that girl, are you serious? And, and that was just one of many just sparks of hope of like, wow, that's crazy. That's really awesome and crazy, and is that real? And, and it wasn't just that one person. It was, it was probably a dozen in there. And so I kept asking more and more questions, and um, the, that spark was just alive, and I, I went to our, our area, and, and where our church leaders were in Laguna Niguel, and I'm like, why don't we have one of these up here? Like, why do people have to drive all the way? Who's driving to Whittier? You'll tell that, like, an hour to this meeting. And it was once a week. I'm like, well, I remember going, what? Like, in Nashville, whatever that guy's name was, he's like, like, I gotta go to a meeting, and he's like, go to a meeting, it's like, always a meeting, like, what did you do? He's like, I just waited till next week, and I felt bad, I'm like, that's insane, like, same place pretty far, like, why don't we just have one up here? Not totally naive, but just like, why don't we, and I just started asking, 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 and then finally our leader was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea, why don't we have one, why don't you start it? And Jay, I'm like, oh crap, so I'm like, Jay, we're gonna start one, but I don't know what to do, so I just became a student of AA and learned about Bill and Bob, and I'm like going to the Canyon Club, like, like I walk in here, like there's meetings here, there's like coffee place there, it's beautiful, like, you order food there, get the paper coffee, or is it free? You get free coffee. Okay, I was afraid to ask. Coffee bar. I, was afraid, I was afraid to ask, so I get free coffee, and I don't do coffee, but I'm curious, like, how does this work? 
I just became a student, and I dove in. And fast forward, um, we've got six meetings in South Orange County that didn't used to exist within our church congregation. I recruited Matt because it, it, I said, warning, you're going to love it, and you're going to not stop talking about it. Um, because the, the, when, I see a, when I speak to someone or I meet someone who's struggling with addiction or, or has a loved one, I, I feel a little bit of despair, but I also feel hope. Like, man, if they are honest about it, they can get real recovery. There's a real, there's real hope involved, and I've seen it over and over again. I, um, and so let me, um, I want to backtrack in just in case you're not uh, familiar, but first of all, did anyone survive the lettuce scare? Did, <laughs> did anybody get sick? Did anybody see, like, go to restaurants and see the signs? Well, they were, I was in uh, state, but was there, like, stuff all around for that? We just didn't serve lettuce through Thanksgiving. Okay, like, it was, it was a big deal. Like, I remember, like, I remember questioning, like, my daughter was like, I don't eat salads. Like, I don't even know what to eat. And it was, like, a big deal. But I looked up on the way here, like, no one even died from that. Like, 30 people went to the hospital. But every, it was, like, a huge deal. Okay? And, and th- there's this thing called the opiate cr- epidemic, opiate crisis. And I'm just going to read some of these numbers because think about that lettuce scare. And, like, we stopped serving it. It was a discussion at Thanksgiving. But are we really talking about the epidemic, the opiate epidemic? Um, in Orange County, um, 7,457 opiate overdoses or abuse cases treated in the emergency rooms in the four years of 2011 to 2015. A study released last year by the Orange County Health shows alarming figures when it comes to drug use and deaths in the country. Seven out of ten overdose deaths investigated in Orange County, Orange County Sheriff's Corner, during the five-year period involved opioids. The areas seeing the most emergency room visits were coastal cities. That's right here, between San Clemente and Huntington. Last year, 11.4 million Americans aged 12 or older misused opioids. 12 years old. Um, the vast majority misused prescription pain relievers. It was also the worst year for drug overdose deaths in U.S. history. More than 72,000 people died of overdoses, and two-thirds of those deaths were linked directly to opioids. That means that 140 people died every day this year from prescription or illicit opioid overdoses. It's every day. Up, it's gone up to 200 a day now. 200 a day. I just found that out today. We're talking about lettuce. And I just read an article today that said the life expectancy in this country is dropping because of drug overdoses. Well, it could be because it's not just opioids is an epidemic, and then you see these other things where, like, methamphetamine is making a decline because the doctors are changing things. It is becoming more aware. But addiction deaths are on the rise on many things. The question just is in 2017, I just heard this statistic. Just in 2017, more people died from opioid overdoses than in the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, and the Afghanistan War combined in one year. Wow. But we're talking about lettuce. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I don't know, lettuce is more fun to talk about or, or what, but I think it's less scary. You know, getting diarrhea for a few days is, is, is embarrassing enough, right? We'll now we're getting real. It. We'll talk about it. So I'm going to keep going on. Alcohol, alcohol is 88,000 people die from alcohol-related annually, uh, making alcohol the third preventable case. What are the first two? Hard. Hard to Preventable. Preventable. Like 
Doctor? Heart disease. Tobacco is number one still. For eating substance wise? No, just deaths. Preventable deaths. Preventable. Preventable. Even though heart could be. Number one is tobacco still, which is shocking, right? Like everyone, I mean, if you start smoking tobacco now, it's kind of interesting. Like it's no secret, but it's still the number one killer. And number two is poor diet and lack of physical exercise. Um, and alcohol is three, and opioids is coming up. It's pretty quick, right? All addiction related, right? The obesity problem is addiction related. Um, so the, those are these are all around us. Is I guess my point there. And and if you're like me, you felt like, what can I do about it? Um, so um, besides helping start these meetings, and we have you know probably within those meetings several hundred people attend weekly. Our, our podcast, um, I'm not getting a plug, but if you want to listen to it, like we just do it for free, and I say for fun, but I like sleep and we stay up late doing it. Um, but we, we long for an interview uh, addicts in recovery or their family members or spouses. And so we've had thousands of minutes of just discussing and finding about their story and how they found recovery. And there's some common themes among all of them. Um, there's not one direct path, but some of the ones we've talked about are common themes. Um, one of them is, it's not about the drug or behavior. Drugs feel really good, apparently. I've never been high, never been drunk. But I believe everyone who says, they feel really good. They must. They must if you're going to sell your body to get that drug. <coughs> like that, They just have to feel good to a certain point, right? At least initially. Um, and then um, I've found that some addictions start from willful rebellion, teenage experimentation, the screw it, I'm going to go do this, or whatever. And then many are, are, are opiate addictions or other addictions from a legitimate surgery that carry on. Um, and so I want to go back and read, um, you probably know this, but because I became a student of AA, back in the 1938 original multi-city manuscript of AA, um, it asked these questions, and it says, can you relate to these? And it said, would you like to overcome these? And this is for alcohol, and back in the time, it was for alcoholic only. And now there's Narcotics Anonymous, Gambling Anonymous, uh, Pornography Anonymous. I mean, there's an anonymous for everything. Um, number one, being restless, irritable, and discontented. Having trouble with personal relationships. Not being able to control our emotion, emotional natures. Being a prey to or suffering from misery and depression. Not being able to make a living or happy in a successful life. Having feelings of usefulness, uselessness. Being full of fear, unhappiness, inability to be of real help to other people. Being like the actor who wants to run the whole show. Being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. Mm. Self-will run riot. Leading a double life. Living like a tornado running through the lives of others and exhibiting selfish and inconsiderate habits. These maladies are identified as the common identifier of self-centeredness, which is believed to be the root of the troubles of addiction. Participating in a 12-step program is intended to replace self-centeredness with a growing moral unconscious, sorry, moral consciousness and a willing for self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. When you read through those, you don't have to be 
an addict, an alcoholic, whatever, to relate to those. I think we all have those to varying degrees. And when those become a problem or out of control, that's when uh, I have seen the 12 steps help. They kind of like, if you see the, what about Bob, the baby steps? <laughs> these are like the baby steps to get these things in check. And if you get these things in check, when they've gone in check, that's when recovery and sobriety and connection comes back into people's lives. Do you know that gravity is still a theory? It's a theory. I believe gravity exists because I've seen it. I've seen, i felt it. felt the effects of it. I've got a weird shoulder bone here because of gravity. that popped out from a mountain biking accident. Most of us accept gravity as a fact because we have seen it. Um, similar, the theory of God or some higher power is a fact for many of us because we've seen the power and effects in our lives or in the lives of others. And within church, this spiritual awakening that's referred to in 12-step meetings is referred to as surrendering to our Lord and Savior to do God's will, not our will. And many of us believe because mankind has fallen, we are all natural men and women, and we struggle with all those above maladies. We all struggle with those. But we believe, uh, and that higher power, that God, that, that Christ, whatever it is, um, to help us overcome those maladies. <clears throat> Too often we think of this, it's called the atonement of Jesus Christ, as just an end-of-life thing. Or just when we, we do something to offend someone or something. But this is something, if done right, you apply it every day in your life. And that's what I have found and have been inspired as a normie participating in the 12-step meetings. And so I hope that you're inspired by these two gentlemen. Because the, one of the weirdest things you hear when you first is people sharing, I'm thankful that I'm an alcoholic. I'm, I'm so glad that I'm a drug addict in recovery. And I was like, you're crazy. Why would you be thankful for that? And then after a while, I'm like, yeah, I remember saying to Jay, I'm kind of jealous. <laughs> like, remember that? I said it. And you're like, no, you don't. You're an idiot. Like, why would you want that? I'm like, because, and, and you, Jay, I know Jay much better than Vicar, but compelled to be a better person on a daily basis because he has to. I, don't, I can be lazy with my spiritual maladies because they, they don't affect me as much. And so I'm almost jealous that he's able to be compelled, and he's jealous that I don't have to be. But that's where we shouldn't, our egos shouldn't be comparing each other and just focus on ourselves. Um, so, I think I'm going to end on that and maybe add some stuff for Q&A. Wait, Jay? All right. I use the over to podcast, as long as you not talked in between me on the podcast. Yeah, I was getting comments on our podcast that I always cut people off. Yeah. <laughs> I think it didn't cut off the entire time. I was thinking all these things I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> they all went away. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be able to speak. I'm Jay. I'm an addict in recovery. And uh, um, I am grateful that I found out that I am an addict. Um, that was one of those things that I was trying to deny every single day. You know, I was running around telling this lie to, to everyone around me. Right? It was clear and it was obvious to everyone in my life that my life was unmanageable, but me. And uh, the, the catalyst that changed my life, my rock bottom, as people say, was uh, I was living in Utah. I was back in school um, after doing summer sales for an alarm company, and yeah, I was back in school, and, and we, we had one beautiful boy who was a little over one years old, and I had a daughter that was on its way. My wife was about four months pregnant-ish, and um, I remember putting my son um, to bed, who I like loved more than anything on this, in this world, and um, kissing him goodnight, and ready to crawl into bed, you know, and tuck my wife in, and you know, watch Netflix or something, you know, isolate. And uh, I went to give her a kiss goodnight, and she said, "I hate you, and I want a divorce." 
I wasn't even a fight. You know, at least that I can remember. <laughs> this is how sick I was. And he remembered it. Why are you saying this? Like, I mean, panic happened. And, uh, but like I said, that I, now when I speak, I say that that's the best, that was the best, best thing that has ever happened to me. Because up until that point, I was around 26 years old, no one in my life, I had friends leave, and I had friends, you know, and girlfriends and breakups and things like that. But no one that, how do you put this? I mean, everyone's had kids in here probably. For the most part, it's like, you're, 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 you're carrying my baby. How do you say you hate me? You know, like, I, I would never say that about you, even in an argument. But that was real. And she wasn't fake. This wasn't an emotional, you know, thing that she was trying to get what she wanted. She was done. And no one in my life up to that point had done that. Meanwhile, I caused chaos in a lot of people's lives. My mother's life, my, my friends' lives, my you know, school, you name it. I was, I, was a, I was the tornado we talked about. One thing he didn't list is, for the checklist, is I'm an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. <laughs> and I tell you what, when someone cuts, someone that you love looks you in the eye and doesn't cry and says they hate you and they want a divorce, it's, it's shattering. Chaos entered my life. And, um, she said she wanted to move home. Take me home. Take me home to my parents' house. And I fought it and I threw a tantrum like I'd always done to try to get my way. And um, finally I gave in after trying to manipulate church leaders and therapists and she was the problem or this was just a thing, you know, whatever, you know, like I, I tried everything. I'm a pretty good salesman and I couldn't close that deal. And I ended up driving, you know, getting the U-Haul and driving her to her parents' house. Kind of not, this is surreal, right? Like what's happening? You know, I didn't grow up in religion and um, I, I, I grew up like most teenagers uh, outside of Mormonism where you know, like we just, you, you party a little bit, right? You smoke some weed, you drink, you have fun, but you, you know, you still need to be productive, you need to have a job. Like these are the things that measure success. And uh, I was able to get clean and I found religion. I found what I thought was going to be the purpose of my life, and that was to share about my Savior. And I, I joined the church when I was 19 years old, okay? I quit drinking, smoking <clears throat> cigarettes, the whole thing. You know, the girls, my friends thought I was nuts. What 19-year-old, you know, becomes a Mormon, right? Not even for a girlfriend. This is just, <laughs> like, at the time, I met this guy in the boss, and, you know, I loved the way he lived. And I loved, I see that for the first time in my life, someone was living the way they were preaching. And now that, that, was, that was inspiring. And the reason why I'm telling you about my, I end up going on a mission. So most, you know, most Mormons, if you're under a certain age, you get the opportunity, if you're worthy, to go serve a mission where you pay for your way, right? The church doesn't fund it. You fund it. And you get to go to wherever they call you. You don't even get to pay. And you just get a little letter in the mail, and you have this little get-together. you know, get together and It's a big thing. And I, got, I drew the ticket for the Philippines. And I was so excited and so nervous, you know. And, and um, I thought by going out and doing the Lord's work, right, I was going to be protected, right? Because here I, I was this wild kid, and I changed my life. I wear a white shirt and tie on Sundays now. You know what I mean? I don't swear as much much. And, uh, <laughs> I'm actually better than but And uh, so I go off on my mission. My family thinks I'm nuts, but they support me, and I go. And um, I had a miraculous opportunity to, to see another country and the world, but I started having these migraine headaches. And um, I, I end up, you know, fast forward after a year being out, they were so bad that I started having an MRI. They thought maybe I had a tumor or something was severe. And sure enough, they did find things that were in my cavities, but they weren't tumors. They were cysts the size of grapes. And they had to be surgically removed, and there were several of them that weren't going away. They were just inflamed all the time. And so they said, we're going to fly you to Seattle, and you're going to have the surgery. But you get, I said, well, I'm not going home. I'm, I'm here to serve a mission. This is what I'm supposed to do in life. I know it. And I go there, and the reason why I tell you that is because right before my surgery, I meet this surgeon, plastic surgeon, and he's going to do the drilling and the breaking of the nose and all this stuff. And he, he said, 
pre-surgery, if you I, you're still getting headaches, I'm like every every other day, you know. And it's like, okay, just here's this, here's this. <clears throat> I want you to take one of these every time you get a headache. I'm like, okay, right. So I think I get my prescription and my surgery is for a week or so out. This was pre-surgery. I, I was written, I think over 350. Uh, I think it was around 350 um, Percocet pre-surgery. And um, and I went home, not thinking anything of that, right? Because I did I didn't touch hard drugs as a kid. It was that's not something I was into. I just drank like you know, like, you know, like normal people, I thought. And uh, and I, I remember a couple days later, I woke up from my uh, I woke up just excruciating pain. If you've ever had migraines, you know what that's like. And pain, pain, pain. I remember, oh yeah, I have pills somewhere. The doctor said to take one of those. I'll never forget the experience that happened when I took that. It's just like an alcoholic taking their first drink. It was, it was not chaos, it was empowerment. It was pure relief for the first time I've ever felt, and I've had headaches my entire life. And I was so naive at 19 years old that I thought, or 20 years old at that point, that this was a miracle, this was a gift from God. This is what allowed me to function like everyone else. Once again, naive, thinking that everyone else has no problems, it's just me. And, I, and from there, then I had surgery, you know, and it was amazing. I enjoyed every, everything about that day, I'll never forget it. And I had surgery, you know, fast forward, and now the headaches were even worse from recovery. And the scripts just keep getting written. Before you know it, I did what it says, one to two every three to four hours, and taking three to four every one to two hours. And, and it happened on my mission of all places. So, you know, that little bicycle and the sweat, you know, those nerdy kids. That was me. I wasn't, I wasn't wild. I wasn't trying to be wild for the first time in my life. I was trying to do what I thought was a greater purpose. And yet, chaos had found me. And... Um, it got so bad that um, eventually members that I was serving in Seattle were like, you're not the same person that you were when we first met you. How many of those are you taking? And I remember breaking down crying. It was the first time someone called me out. And um, I told him, and, and we flushed, you know, we did what you think, I'll just flush him down the toilet and I'll fix it. And it did, you know, I stopped taking them. I threw up for a few days. And, but then all of a sudden, this disconnected, I can't explain. It was the worst ADD. And I was prescribed prescription pills when I was a kid, but... It was the worst ADD I ever felt, so disconnected. Not only from other people, from my own thoughts. At this point, I'd been consuming Percocet like they were Skittles for about three months. You know, 30 a day, 40 a day. And, um, and uh, I just I remember coming home from my mission and being so disconnected. And one day at work, um, I got home, got a job from that mission, and uh, hurt my back. And my buddy, that was the, the boss, said, I got some of these pills. And I knew what that was going to happen. I knew if I took that pill again, where it was going to go. But you know what? I said, I got this. I'm not an addict. You know, I'm not, who am I? Like, I haven't taken them in months. I'll be fine. I took one. The next seven years, I was off to the races. By the time my wife, back to where she said she hated me and wanted a divorce, I was consuming thousands of prescription pills. Now I had also moved on. <coughs> To morphine, I'd also moved on to uh, Soma's Muscle Relaxers, handfuls of those. My grandma was smuggling in through Mexico. She didn't know she was doing this for me. She thought I had a prescription for these things. And she was getting them across the board like most of the 80-year-olds do. I could have locked her up. Enabler, <laughs> <laughs> right? Some manipulator. And, and Adderall, because BYU doctors will write anyone. You got to study? Let's get that pad out. Let's get you a straight A's. And so I was consuming those like to just get up out of bed. And But being Mormon, I wouldn't drink. Right? I drink, I don't smoke cigarettes. I'm not an addict. And uh, mind you, my wife left me. I lost everything. I had nothing but debt, and I had to move to Laguna Niguel, sleep on my mom's couch, which I'm grateful for. 
next to her dog, with my one-and-a-half-year-old coming every other week, and I couldn't even function to take care of him. My mom, who works full-time for the city of Michigan, would get up, make herself ready, take care of my son, put food on there, and leave and give me a kick, because she had to go to work, and I'm sitting there shaking and detoxing, because I was... I had two choices at that point. I was either going to die, gonna, now my wife left me, now it's on. It's, I'm, going, I'm going all the way and I'm, I'm, I'm going to die. And I thought I for sure was. Or <clears throat> go to this meeting in San Clemente. And a friend, luckily, who was suffering just like I was, said, come with me, there's hope. And I said, I'm not like you. Once again, I'm an egomaniac. Your life's falling apart, not mine. I'm sleeping next to my mom's dog. And I'm telling him that he has a problem. He's not even married. You know what I mean? He still has got his girlfriend. I got nothing. And, um, but I went there, and I realized real quickly, it hit me square in the face, this is, this, these are my people. I started to connect. I started to stop looking at the differences and seeing the similarities. And I started to connect and realize these are real people. Remember, I walked in there with the ego, and I was the dropout from college. Everyone else in their own businesses, lawyers, <coughs> doctors, you know, amazing people, you know. And, and I realized this is, not a, this is not something I need to be ashamed of. And I'll never forget when I admitted that I had a problem. Because the weight of that lie that I've been telling myself for years and trying to get everyone around me to believe, it's gone. And now I had hope. It's interesting, once you get honest, hope comes in instantaneously. If you've ever gotten honest about something, even though it may create chaos because there's a weight that falls when you stop the boat, but it brings hope. And I believe that that's from my higher power, that that's why that comes. And um, a few months into that, of admitting I was, uh, I was an addict, miraculously, my wife came back to me. And um, I was sitting here thinking when we were having the opportunity, if you would have told me six years ago I'd be sitting here with all you amazing people, sharing the story of how just a kid, just a normal person, you got hooked and caused a lot of damage. And I'm just so grateful to be alive. I've never been to a funeral for a family member that died of natural causes or a friend. Everything has been through addiction. All my friends growing up from right down the street from here are all dead or in jail from heroin. None of us were on heroin when we were kids. <clears throat> Most of them had prescription drugs and then heroin. I spoke at Laguna Beach High School a few years in a row there on Red Ribbon Week. Had the whole entire school, over 1,100 kids, raise their hand if they knew someone in their close family or friends that were addicted to prescription pills like I was or heroin. <clears throat> I think I didn't see every hand went up, including the staff. This is an epidemic. And it, more people did die last year, and it is going up. But I'm grateful that I'm not part of that problem anymore, and I'm part of the solution. Rather than connecting on Facebook, I'm here communicating my story, hoping that someone else will find hope. Because I'm not anything special. There are hundreds and millions of other people <coughs> get honest every day, and they change their life. It is possible. I have done it, and I continually have to do it. And I'm grateful to be alive. And I'm grateful for friends like Brad, who's a normie that has dedicated and helped me give me that, that push to go share my story. And I'm just grateful to be here, and I know that this is something that is treatable. When, it's, when I say treatable, I mean it's curable. 
it is, in a sense, not the allergy of the brain is curable. I'll never take a pill like that again or take a sip of alcohol. But I'm talking about the spiritual malady, which I'm sure we'll talk about later more. But I know that these things are true and that 12-step um, program saved my life. And I'm grateful to be here and I appreciate the time. Mm. Hi, my name is Victor and I'm an alcoholic. And then you say... Hi, Victor. Hi. Thank you, Tammy and Taylor, for uh, having everybody in your home in a space like this, and the framework of this topic being super personal to me, and I love you both and your family fully, and thank you, Matt, for considering me to speak, and thank you, Brad and Jay. Um, so, I'm uh, born in 1961, and... Uh, I would like to tell you that I had a very normal kind of childhood, but that just isn't true looking in the rearview mirror today. But at that point, I really thought I had a really normal childhood, two parents, three siblings, and, uh, and I think I felt safe and protected. I don't really remember a lot at like four and five, but I do remember this. I remember my mom walking me to school, kindergarten, for the first time, and, uh, and seeing the chain link fence around the school and her walking me in, and I was riddled with fear and uncertainty. And I just want to be really honest with you, knowing and experiencing all that I have now, I needed a cocktail that first day. <laughs> it was scary, and it was uncomfortable. And, uh, and I probably needed a cocktail the second day, too, right? <laughs> and um, I, uh, I remember uh, feeling like a specific kind of young man, a specific kind of kid, and it, it felt different than others. And uh, I remember growing up thinking that other guys had a better handle on what it was like to be a guy better than me. And... Uh, and that gave me feelings of uncertainty and discomfort. And, and I was in a generation then where TV shows that I was tuning into were Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best, The Donna Reed Show. And honestly, in my house, it wasn't really playing out like that. I remember uh, at eight years old, uh, I found out in the middle of the night my father had died at 40. And, and then shortly past that, uh, I had a very traumatic uh, experience that I don't need to paint out to you, but I'll tell you this much. I survived it, but a piece of me was dead. <coughs> it left me alive. And, uh, and at eight years old, that's a really small kid there. And I really had the innocence of a sweet kid. I believed in God. And, uh, and I don't think I consciously knew then that I was headed in a different trajectory. But I do remember um, that I needed more because it, it, it embedded in me fear. And I didn't have coping mechanisms for fear at that age or even a little bit older. And, you know, kids can be cruel and you go through the normal basics, 
you know, problems, lies, cheating, they're mean to you, some bullying, and uh, like I said, I'm a pretty specific guy. Can you imagine this guy as an eight-year-old, right? <laughs> In the 60s, right? So, um, listen, I was really traumatized and I didn't realize how bad the trauma was experienced uh, for me, but um, uh, I fell into a sport Tennis, which I gravitated to, and so before I found any drugs, there was something about tennis that took me away from what made me scared. It might have been the OCD of it, or whatever it was, I felt uh, refuge in that sport, and I got good at it. And, um, and then at 15, uh, I remember uh, my brother, and his two very large football friends put me in the back of his Capri. A Capri, do you remember those? <laughs> Anybody here? Uh, and they drove me out into the foothills and they uh, told me that if I didn't uh, smoke out of a bong, that uh, they were gonna beat me. And honestly, in the back seat, and my older brother's in the front, there's a lot of confusion that goes in there because this guy I love and he's supposed to protect me. And uh, they were all hell-bent on me doing this. So terrible. And, uh, and so I refused, and without flinching, this guy whacked me in the face and really rung my bell, and I was stunned, and, you know, I, I'm sure I was in shock, and it hurt. It really hurt. I didn't take punches to the face before then, and... Uh, and I was scared enough that I ended up uh, trying to hit this bong. I don't know if you guys know what they look like there. Anyway, uh, the, smoke, the smoke came in and it filled my lungs in such an extraordinary way that I coughed it up and uh, it was painful and I was gasping and it hurt and then they offered me a cold beer which at that point didn't seem like a bad idea because my throat was on fire. And, uh, and they said, now you're gonna do it again. And to which I, you know, not reluctantly saying no, and I had to take another punch, not to the face this time, but to the chest. And uh, honestly, that is uh, incredibly abusive right there. And so I did it again, the same reaction, a cold beer chaser, and then uh, after the third time, uh, I think 15 minutes had gone by, there was something that did change about me in that moment. And less about the fear, but some kind of ease and comfort that washed over me, whatever was in that uh, marijuana and the combination with the beer, I, I felt different and I settled into it. And I almost felt in a way like I had arrived at 15 years old. And also because of uh, the trauma and fears that I had experienced in the past, that ease and comfort became a coping mechanism for me. I felt better than the way I was feeling without the drug and the alcohol. And the very next day I went and bought an ounce of weed. The switch went on just like that. And I'm not gonna tell you my long, sad, drunk log but I'll tell you something. <laughs> This uh, disease took a lot away from me. You know, I was able to play college tennis, and my second year, uh, just 
felt better to back away from tennis and to party and have fun. And, uh, and, but my disease progressed and now it became powdered alcohol and alcohol and weed and maybe then pills and this disease is progressive. And I'll just run you through, uh, anyway, my ass went through treatment at 44 years old. It's a long time to extend drug use. 30 years of really bad choices, of a double lifing, uh, that means being this guy out here, but inside I'm dead me. And I know it when I look in the mirror, but I try to pretend, right, that I'm something that I'm not. And a lot of people buy it when they see this, right? But it, I was dying. And uh, I remember arriving to treatment. I went to a fancy schmancy place because I'm a fancy guy. <laughs> and I went to promises and it cost a lot of money. But I'll tell you that I felt like I had finished the, hit the yellow tape of the marathon. And uh, they took me to the mermaid meeting that night and there was a gentleman standing in a 300 person venue and he's up at a podium with a coat and tie on. And I could see the whites of his eyes and he was stringing together sentences pretty well and I remember him saying, if you're sitting in this room right now, you're not responsible for your disease, but you are responsible for your recovery. And you've just now tapped into a source of power much greater than yourself. And you don't have to drink and you don't have to use no matter what, prov providing you're willing to fulfill some conditions. And that guy caught my attention right then. And he went on to say that the worse, are, the worse you are when you get here, the better your chances are of staying. And I got the message of hope at that first meeting. And he finished his speech. It was like a Broadway show, Frank Jones. <laughs> Frank Jones. And uh, this guy changed my life, uh, Frank Jones. He would say something from chapter five at the end of his pitch. He was a circuit speaker. He'd, it says in chapter five, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. And at that point, and because of sports, it became a big competition for me. There was no way I was ever gonna break sobriety, and I never have since February 3rd, 2006. And I know that's not everyone's story. Uh, but I'll tell you this, uh, I was of the ilk that I was going to do this like a high trained athlete, which I had experience in, and that's how I approached it. And I used to take some sort of pleasure when someone fell. I know that sounds heartless and cruel, but I was new and I didn't have coping skills. And, uh, and that guy, Frank Jones at the podium, I asked him to be my sponsor and he taught me everything. He, he unwound all this belief system that I had, that I had learned. All of us have learned one from our parents, our experiences, but I had a lot of really bad stuff sitting there. He had to knock all that stuff down and he used to teach me the way to be a man. And I never felt like that before. And uh, I made a lot of mistakes. And it wasn't that I was making the mistakes, but I was also defending my mistakes, right? He'd call me out on that stuff. <clears throat> he taught me everything. And I lost him to cancer when I was nine years sober. And I got another, uh, I got another sponsor who's great. And, uh, but I just want you to know that uh, that first day when I made a commitment, you awaken if you're without drugs. 
And you have to learn how to go through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday without drugs. And then Saturdays and Sundays, weekends, right? And holidays. And I know that sounds really stupid to you, but every little milestone is something for a guy like me who was used to using drugs because I had to. And it was really, really bad. I'm an animal. I'm not this guy. I'm an animal. Oh, not that kind of animal. Like, I'm a filthy, lying, hustling, manipulative creature that just the second he wakes up is planning how I'm going to get out of my house and go do my thing. And, uh, and it's nothing that I'm proud of. But I'll tell you this. I'd much rather go through life sober, uh, believing I'm an alcoholic, than to go through life a drunk, trying to pretend that I'm not. And also, uh, my life has changed. Uh, I got uh, to experience, I was super judgmental in the meetings at the beginning, and because you're stupid, you stop growing as a young kid at 15, and you don't... You don't get the kind of skills or abilities that people that don't do what I did. And maybe some of you have, you know, character defects like me, but I would get called out on them all the time. First through marriage counseling, two and a half years of that, two women against me, and I was in the wrong, and that's hard, and then a therapist, and then a sponsor, and it wasn't easy, but you know what? I was willing to go to any length to get better. And honestly, it's gotten better. I don't hate that guy anymore. And it took a while. Uh, it took a while, and it wasn't easy. But it's been worth it. And I never thought a guy was going to want anything that I had. And uh, I couldn't have been further from the truth. God had sent me guy after guy after guy after guy after guy, a legion of guys. And... Uh, <coughs> And I can't tell you the feeling just to be a part of watching the lights come on for someone else. That I wake up and pray for the knowledge of God's will for me and just the power to carry that out. And there have been really tough days. And I'm telling you, I've had intimate, personal, tough days. And I got to remember that my record for getting through tough days so far is 100%. It's <laughs> 100% getting through tough days. Even though I don't feel it, I got to be appreciative of God sending me those tough days. I didn't know how to appreciate it. It's easy to say, oh my God, you know, when my will aligns with God, everything's so great, you know, <laughs> that's God doing that for me. But when it's not so great, you know, uh, where's God now, right? And uh, I'm just going to tell you that for me... Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous turned out to be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And I'm not saying it because I'm sitting up here at the dais or because Matt said, that's what you got to say. <laughs> or, uh, or because uh, I'm being forced to say it. I'm saying it because this program and this fellowship and this spirit that came into me has been working in my life better than anything I've discovered up until this point, and I'm grateful. Thanks. Mm -hmm. uh, If you've ever seen anything like that before, but I hadn't until I'd gone to my first 12-step meeting. But that's why was, Brad was joking about me. My wife gets mad at me for talking about this all the time. <laughs> but it's because when you hear that, you can't help but feel it. 
and you have a connection now to Brad and Jay and Victor that you didn't have an hour ago, right? Because of their willingness to be authentic and to let you into their story and to give you that hope that has come into their own life. Let's open it up for questions. <laughs> Who wants to go first? Tamara. First of all, I love you. Billion years, and um, he's dear to me. And Victor, um, things uh, in my life I think are so much better with you and your family in them. And I know many people that you've helped, and it's it's really incredible to see. So that's my comment. But my question is, and Jay, you too. I love you too. I don't know you as well as well. <laughs> But I can, tell, <laughs> I can tell that you are of this, of this ilk. Um, my question is, how do you not compare yourself where you are, or maybe one of your family members is struggling? How do you not compare and feel down about um, where you are or where they are compared to other functioning people? Or, um, you know, you see your child who's having such a horrible time and not blame yourself or you, how do you not blame other people for your problem with comparison? I just want to know how you deal with comparison. Try not to. <laughs> I try not to compare myself anymore, you know. Every day, like, like Victor said, I mean, like a lot of us feel this way, you know, I didn't share a lot of those things, but you know, from day one, not having a father and you show up to little league practice with your grandma, you, you don't feel like you fit in real quick, you know, and you start comparing and some of us it doesn't shut off. So I try not to, you know, and I try to, and one thing about the helping others, because now I have loved ones, you know, of course they're suffering and friends, but uh, I'm not their savior. I'm not the savior. My job is, uh, as, as someone who's been saved, is to carry the message, and that's just someone else's quote, but, you know, to carry the message to that person. Carry the message, not the person. Not the person, yeah. And, and sometimes you don't have the message, but you know other people do, and that's kind of like what you did tonight. You. You, you brought people that have the message to bring to other people, and then they can take it to other We're all We all can be a part of this, or we can keep isolating people, and we can keep putting them on the skirts of town like they used to do the lepers, right? And you'd walk by, and you'd toss your bread, and you keep walking. What happens when that's your kid, or your family member, your father, your mother, your wife, your husband? You know, and so try not to compare. Just try to love. I know the, I know the answer to this question. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> because the Lord is in charge. Right. So the, the one thing that uh, if you're a normie like me is I've, what I've done is expand my friend network to know people because there's no there's, the way I can't connect with another addict the way Jay or Victor can it just doesn't happen right. it's like I surf I can know within five seconds if you're a poser if you surf, if you boogie board or you stand a paddle and then they're like alright well you're one of those? Okay, cool. I'll be nice to you, but I'm not going to take advice from you. And, and these guys could do it real quick. When you're at you're like, you don't know what the crap you're talking about. You don't struggle with what I have. And when Victor's talking about a sponsor, because you respect that level, because they've been places you've been. And, and so what I've learned is, you know what? I have a friend that's not through that. Let me see if I can connect you with whatever. And so... This is a great form. And that's, that's what's critical for me is people like these guys who break anonymity. Because a lot of people don't. They'll share in a meeting, and no one knows they're in active recovery outside that meeting. And one of the things I learned by reading the original AA, the reason why the enemy was so important 
There wasn't enough people in recovery to sponsor. There's not, there's not people like Victor who can sponsor 50 people. And so they're like, you got to stay quiet because your sobriety comes first. And if you start sponsoring 50 people, you're going to relapse. And so that was one of the first things. Like, you got to, let's just keep it in here because there's too many people that need help. And so if you can get lucky enough to have some friends that break anonymity and are willing to share that, they're, so, they're, they're critical in that process. Can I just piggyback on this? Oh, I'm so sorry. No, It'll only take a second. Um, um, so when kids are little, we manage them. They're easier. To, I mean, they're a bag of nuts, right? But we manage them. <laughs> and we assume that we have power over them. I assumed I had power over them. And uh, as it turns out, I don't have power over my kids. They cross this line. They have minds of their own wills of their own and uh, and yeah my yeah I have uh, experience with uh, a child's will not matching my will and uh, and headed down a disastrous path and uh, terror that I felt and that my wife felt is unspeakable and lots of people don't speak about it they don't speak about it, right? We're all good. We're not going to talk about this, right? And the problem for me is that I started becoming more insane than my kid. Invisibly insane. Worrying nonstop, tracking him, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, I needed, a, I needed a, another program because I started hating him. How about that? That's not a real natural feeling for a dad, right? I was so pissed, he stole so much focus, took our family hostage, and uh, I had little kids at the time that had to experience this. And here's the difference today, and this is everything that I accredit to this power that we're all grateful to be tapped into, is that I don't care what my son does now, I'm able to love my kid no matter what. And that's a long drive for me because I never thought that I'd be able to feel and think that way. And I got better. You can be insane, sober, right? How about that? Absolutely nuts, right? But uh, I feel good. You're right. You either get to let go or you get to get dragged. You can let go of the reins, or you get dragged through it. My suggestion is to let go. <laughs> and there are meetings for that, too. There are right. he, he went to, like, what he's talking about is, is there is, you know, it's more specific. If it is a loved one, if it is someone that you, you are dear to you, there are meetings. Just like for the alcoholic, there are meetings for the loved ones. Mm -hmm. It's called Al-Anon. Mm -hmm. yep. I go all the time, if anyone wants to go with me. Uh, there you go. There's, there's Al-Anon, and there's Alateen. I, I talked to a former student of mine whose mom <clears throat> died of an, an, uh, an overdose his senior year yeah. and his dad's a drug addict alcoholic and he's just like he's got accepted to college because of tennis because he's a killer tennis player he sucks at school <laughs> um, but but he's like he's drowning he's insane and I'm like I'm going to take you if you ever heard of Alex never heard of it no one around him has told him about these resources so we're going to go to an Alex team meeting I mean, I never cry. It's like the thing my family, you know, always says about me, like I'm not human. And there I am, like in this meeting, like I can't even compose myself, you know. Mm -hmm. And but like what you said, Victor, like sometimes I feel like I can let go of the reins for a minute. I'm like I'm doing good. And then the next day I'm like holding on, 
for dear life and just eating mud and like I can't even I'm so focused on not letting go it's like I, it's for me it's just days of Progress up and down like as a kid it's so hard so hard how do you handle the sh uh, let's see how I'm going to this just say shame. Shame. Um, well, I just, I have long, I, I, I'm a fairly social person historically. You know, lots of friends, and fortunately, at one point in time in my life, in a lot of cities and lots of close people. And but I was raised in a way where it was kind of like um, my dad was a pro baseball coach, so I had the opposite upbringing. It was like you know in a batting cage at Canyon in Anaheim at four in the morning in like fourth grade, you know? And, and so I put all of my happiness and things, achievements, obviously I wasn't good enough to play pro baseball and so that became my first failure and I started putting in other things, law school, school, work. Um, and before you know it, I cared kind of like what everybody thought and I developed a massive cocaine and methamphetamine addiction eventually. Um, and then, uh, instead of unraveling privately in my life, I unraveled very publicly in my life and um, as an investment banker. So as you can imagine, <laughs> it was uncomfortable. And I did it very openly. It was almost like, hey, I don't care what anyone thinks, so I'm going to show all of you how much I don't care what you think by relapsing and wandering around. And now I'm in a time in my life where I'm sort of years away from that, but still, um, people just cut me off. Yeah. Completely. Friends from 25 years. Mm -hmm. um, I was in Mission Hospital on life support for like 13 days or something oh, like that. I had one visitor. And so I'm still at this point in time where I've slowly rebuilt my career. I mean, I lost everything, you know. Shares in companies, like I've lost my whole career. And I had four kids and a wife that stuck by me, but now I'm in this situation where it's hard. It's hard to face the shame. I look at people and I know what they've seen. I know they're thinking things. I can walk here and people probably see me wander on the streets at various points of times and it's a tough situation because when you've been raised that way to put your self-worth in what others think or achievements or money or houses you talk about comparison jeez i lived under that i've lived under that demon my whole life and i'll never get out of it i don't think <laughs> whether it's living in silicon valley or here it's never good enough and so i'm trying to figure that out in my life how do i handle the fact that there are people that probably will always keep their back turned. Um, and it's hard, you know, it's hard for a person that cares about people and is sort of thrives on connectivity and interaction. Yeah, can I just say uh, how courageous it is that you uh, spoke to that and thank you for your honesty. Uh, shame is, in my opinion, embarrassment. Shame's embarrassment, you're embarrassed. And uh, if, any of you are sitting here and don't believe alcoholism is a disease, uh, I, I just, I disagree. I, I believe it's a disease. And if it were cancer, and you were going into treatment, and then cancer came back, you relapsed into cancer, I guarantee you no one would be like, oh my God. There he goes again. There he goes cancer again. Cancer again. You're selfish. But you put an alcoholic out there, and they relapse, and uh, it's just a different reaction. And uh, so anyway, this is, that's why this is so important, just to, it's transactional, the information. Maybe some of you never heard this stuff before. I mean, it's not 
you know, maybe it's groundbreaking. But I really appreciate that you volunteered. That. Jay, is there any shame in the Mormon Church when you? Oh yeah, when yeah. Drug addict. Yeah. I thought they were perfect when I first went there, and and then then to be the then you, when you join the church at nineteen, you're like a poster boy for conversion, right? So they're like, look at this kid, like this guy did it all on his own, and then to fall from grace. That was pretty intense coming home from my mission early. That's not acceptable, you know, even though, like, I was medically released, they wouldn't, I couldn't afford to be out there anymore. I spent all the money in, that I had. And, um, and uh, to come home, but the shame didn't go away until I started to, to dive deep into the 12th step, which is the service of others, you know. When I say service, I don't mean just helping your neighbor. I'm talking about in this disease, you know, the sponsoring, uh, seeing, being. Knowing what Victor said, where he wanted that, what his speaker was saying, you know, his first sponsor, he wanted that, and then see other people who want that from you, like, oh, wait a minute, because I remember driving home with my wife when she came back to me, well, which, you know, you and I are lucky we still have our, our families, most of my, you know, a lot of people don't, and um, I remember driving home and saying, babe, I'm glad you, you came back, and I'm stoked that, you know, I'm alive and all, but I'll never help another soul again. I remember I thought that was my purpose when I went on my mission. And I remember, I, didn't, I wasn't saying that for sympathy. There was no one in the car. My ego was shattered still. I really believed it. When I say shame at a, like a real level, that was like something, and she, she'll tell you, I didn't talk very much my first year because I was walking around with a re reality of who I had became. And I thought I would never help another soul again. The best I could do is just be sober. Here we are tonight. So, you know what I mean? I think the, the gap between that and that, that night has been six years of, of, of being on the front lines. And then, you know, you know it's kind of gone away from me. Good question. Uh, my question is, Laguna Beach is such a great community. And when you speak about being at Laguna Beach High School and everyone raising their hand, I would even say it's the same at Thurston, where my son oh, yeah. talks regularly. And we all know friends. I mean... Victor, your amazing wife, and I have had many conversations about dear friends of ours that uh, clearly have a problem and driving their children. I think Michelle and I have had the same discussion. And how do you help someone um, without feeling like you are imposing or coming across judgmental? And I think a lot of our first reaction is to say, okay, she has a problem, so now my child is not going to hang out with her child, you know? Um, that, that doesn't solve the problem, and, and I feel guilty, I feel responsible for not saying anything mm. because I was afraid that she would reject me as a, as a friend. And, you know, how do we approach those conversations of people that we love that may not have come to that awakening that they have a problem? Oh, I, I've been in your shoes, and I think it's... I think you have to learn to be a wordsmith. I don't think you need to mince words when you see someone who's putting a child at risk, though. I, I Listen, no one could keep me from it. Even if it embarrassed that parent or whoever, I would stop that person. And I happen to know what you're talking about. And uh, maybe there will be a day, sometime, where you can just say, I worry about you. And is everything okay? Maybe try and open the door, the back door, right? Maybe that gives them an opportunity. Most of the time, uh, if someone's not ready to admit, you know, what's the point? It's that kid safety thing, though, that really scares me. That scares me. Yeah, I'm going to read. This is out of our 12-step uh, manual that we use in the church. 
Um, it's basically the 12 steps of AA um, with a little bit of commentary. And on step 12 that Jay mentioned to is service, uh, having, after having a spiritual awakening, you know, reach out and share this message. This is a, so I'm going to read word for word and I'll kind of substitute it for those, uh, I'll substitute some words. When you become aware of others who deal with addiction in their lives or the lives of their loved ones, you may want to let them know about this guide, so just the book. You may want to learn about the 12 steps, about the canyon. You get the Sega Canyon Club right here. Like one of the biggest AA. It's known worldwide. It's worldwide. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So let them know about that. They may not be aware. There's a lot of people who don't even know that exists right down the road. Um, about 12-step programs or addiction recovery programs. If they feel like talking, let them. Tell them some of your story to let them know you can relate. Every one of us have a different story. My story is different. I'm not an addict. I have family member, my best friend. Like I, just whatever your real story is, tell them what your story is and how you can relate. You can't relate directly to them. You know, if you're an alcoholic, you can kind of relate to a cocaine addict, but there's some similarities, but there's some clear differences. Um, simply inform them of the program and the spiritual principles that have blessed your life. You may discover that if an addict is not ready to embrace the spiritual principles, perhaps a family member or friend of the addict may be receptive. And I recommend Al-Anon or other similar program for those that are around them. Because I've learned that I've always been fascinated by why the family members of addicts, particularly kids, also fall into addiction. And a therapist described it. If you know Burl, he's a, a guy around here that does interventions a lot. The, the kids can see an, an addict family member crazy half the time and really fun the other part of the time. But the spouse, insane 100% of the time. So they'd rather be insane part of the time than be insane 100% of the time. And so as soon as a family member get that insanity out by maybe going to Al-Anon or learning about recovery, that hope of someone else getting recovery is much greater. Boom and then boom. Um, you know, I have some experience with this. I have, in fact, I have a lot of experience with a lot of this. <laughs> um, personally, myself and in my family. And in my journey, in my recovery, I'm approaching two years of recovery from opiate addiction. And Jay has been my sponsor. You know, um, one of the things is, is on, on the topic of shame. I grew up in the Good Beach Ward. I mean, the, the, the ward pretty much raised me. So I am just trying to come out and just just uh, tell people that I went to ARP. I remember trying to do that. And I started crying so hard that I couldn't even say the words. I was just slobbering. I go to ARP and I'm, I'm crying so hard. So it's very hard to, to break through that, that denial yourself. But along the topic of um, Mikey and I and our families, we have addiction on both sides. Um, and um, in dealing with some of my children, in trying to figure out how to help them, um, and I'm not talking about Wesley here, I'm talking about another one of my kids. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, went to an, I went to an addiction, uh, a families in recovery workshop run by Burcook in Costa Mesa. It's on Thursday nights. And, and I went consistently for almost a year just to prepare to sort of have some kind of an intervention on, on one of my kids. And even then, it was so difficult, I couldn't, it, it was incredibly difficult. So, but what really stood out to me is that I was putting in the time because I love my kid. And it takes, it takes a lot of time, you know, it takes a lot of time. You can't just make a comment 
you have to put in some time to prepare and to really learn yourself about what it's all about to be able to help somebody else. So people like Brad, I mean, I, I just think the world of Brad. Um, anyway, I just want to share a little bit of that. It just there are resources out there, and people can get involved, and it does take a lot of involvement to really make a difference. Hey, I'm Steven, an alcoholic fanatic. Hey, Steven. Hi, Steven. I was that child in, in a family who was out of control. Um, I have three siblings and um, my parents, none of whom are addicts or alcoholics. I'm the only one. And so I, and I'm the oldest child. I created a lot of chaos in my family. I'm an ex-heroin addict and... Um, so you can, and alcoholic, so you can imagine kind of the, the, the wreckage I've caused. One of the things that my parents started doing um, was they started going to Al-Anon um, long before I got sober, and it made my life hell as an addict. <laughs> <laughs> they learned stuff there that made my life hard. Um, <laughs> that made some manipulation tactics and stuff that I was doing um, less feasible and productive. Um, so I actually moved across the country to kind of be able to still play that game, but from very far away. Um, but one of that actually, as, as much as the hindrance back then, also helped me immensely in my recovery. Um, it, was, it was then when I actually finally hit my rock bottom, I almost was one of those statistics, um, that they were still participating in Al-Anon. They actually went through the 12 steps. Al-Anon follows the exact same 12 steps as Alcoholics Anonymous does. And they did all 12 steps. They're normies. They're completely normal people. My dad's a lawyer. My mom's a school teacher doing the, the 12 steps. And my, one of the telling things that they said to me is, we started this journey because of you, but I've stayed in this journey for me. Mm -hmm. And um, it was really beautiful. Because they've done those 12 steps, they, they, they go on and say that, it's changed their lives and the perception of, of reality, of how they interact with people, how they do business, all of it has really increased their, their, their relationship with God, with, um, with each other, and strengthened our, our family. Um, you know, when I, they, I almost caused them to divorce over me. Um, and I, I, like I said, it caused a lot of problems, but it was, it was huge that they did that for me and continue to be um, doing that. They still go to Al-Anon meetings. I'm, um, I, they've been going to Al-Anon meetings for well over like 10, 12 years now, and they sponsor people, and they help people with steps. They sponsor other parents or other, mainly they work with other parents. Their, their child is, a, is an addict, so they like to work with other parents whose children are, are going through this, and it's a huge thing, and, and I, as an addict, look at that as a huge the biggest blessing I have I've ever had because we have common common language and we have a mutual respect for each other and we can we can talk some of the same lingo a little bit even though they don't really know how I feel inside but we can still talk there's not many addicts or alcoholics out there um, whose families do that it's very few and very far between because families look at it like that's your problem you deal with it I'll support you cool you know I'll pay for treatment um, but that's your problem. And um, I'm one of the fortunate few that 
whose parents got involved and are still involved to this day, even though I'm very far removed from it, but thank God, because it is a beautiful thing for our family and our relationship, and I've never been, so I live 2,000 miles away from my parents, and I have never been so close to them in my life. I think, uh, <clears throat> if, uh, I was going to say, do they want to keep one more? One more? I have a question, and I don't think this would be like any type of at all, but I um, was watching this TED Talk or something, and this guy was talking about how there's a problem with the way we go about thinking about addiction, is that like you have to be sober to, be, to work on your addiction, and his philosophy was that you don't have to necessarily be sober, that you could be like using and working on it, and whereas we think you have to like stop it and then work on it. So I was just wondering that idea or that approach, what your opinion is on that. Because I thought that was, I never had heard that before because I've always, I have a lot of friends who have been to 12 Step and have gone, and, and that's all I've ever heard of, so when he brought that up, I thought that was an interesting topic. Yeah, I have a song about that. Yeah, yeah. go ahead, man. So we're in a, obviously we're in a moment of crisis in the country and in the world right now. And at this point in time, we're going to see more of that sort of thing because we're in a state where we're trying to get people to stop dying. So in this in this time, it's like, what can we do immediately to just to put some sort of a stopgap on what's going on? But the nature of the brain is such that it's constantly adapting and rewiring itself. So every time, uh, I'm, I'm sober, right? I've been sober nine years. If I was to use again, I would reactivate the parts of my brain that used to be active when I was using, reinforcing that behavior, right? And so by doing that, all you're really doing is just prolonging the situation that's, that's, that got you in that position in the first place. It's not a, it's not a long-term solution. It's, it's definitely a way where we can stop our children from dying and our family members from dying. I mean, that's, that's, that's one way, maybe a... Um, it's called a harm reduction approach, but long term, it's not the solution. It's it's it really is a situation where you have to seize that from happening. Just in the same way that if you had lung cancer, you shouldn't smoke anymore. You know, and if you if you continue to smoke, it's just all you're doing is making it worse. So earlier, you had talked about how you saw that sponsor in your sponsor helped you. Quit these brain um, maladies, or where you kind of were in the same patterns, and you're able to break from that pattern. Or these people who are trying to still use it because it helps them in a way cope with their life, but it's not really solving the real problem. So I guess my question is, for you, how do you keep yourself from actually picking that problem and actually solving it? instead of just replacing it with something else. Oh, that's good. Because like, yeah, I can see that even even in my life where the things I think, oh, I'm going to kick that thing and I'm not going to do that, and then I just well, take, something else. Take it, yeah, take it on somewhere else. Like, How do you, as someone who's working on that, kick it and this actually kick it? This is a million dollar program shoved up your ass and nickel every time. That's it. It takes a long time. Nobody's perfect. We still have our defects. You're right, there are plenty of cross addictions. The first one with most addicts that we experience is lust, right? Feeling good, lust. 
right? It's a problem with newcomers, right? And I'll also tell you this, that in our AA culture, not that I'm the expert on it, he gave a great academia-based and accurate answer to you, but I wouldn't dare walk into an AA meeting with an O'Doul's. Yeah. You know why? I'd be, I would get massacred. People would poo-poo on that, right? It's not cool, right? People are fighting for their lives. <clears throat> it's progress, not perfection. You know, one, I mean, he's 100 percent right. When I first got sober, you go one thing to the other, and he's, but it's never ending, right? Like it's never ending. And when I say it's never ending, people like newcomers will say that's daunting to think, but uh, it's not. Life gets better the more you work on it, right? It's like it's like this never ending progress. But those are great questions. Yeah, thank uh, you. Can I just ask one question? Well, one important issue is the only criteria for attending an AA meeting is what? A sincere desire to stop a drinking. Desire to stop drinking. So there are people <clears throat> who are struggling between meetings trying to stop and then having a desire and going to a meeting. Of course, it's not good to continue to drink and go to meetings, but the only criteria to participate is a desire, desire. to stop. So and it takes different amounts of time for people <clears throat> for that traction to happen. For some, it's immediate, it's the first meeting. For others, it's years. So just, just because it's been really sort of uh, present in my life the last few weeks, like you, you guys, like this, the, the whole recovery industry in general, I think is about to make serious changes on uh, because it's required, and then I think you're going to see a lot of changes on a lot of different fronts. I just, I sat in a meeting today that Peter Thiel, the founder of PayPal, wrote a $100 million check, two $50 million checks into a pharmaceutical company to do licensed FDA and DA clinical trials for uh, psychedelics, to use psychedelic stimulants in recovery programs here in the United States and with PTSD with soldiers to get them over PTSD, using ecstasy to get soldiers handling PTSD. And I just, I said on that call today, today three, I don't know, three or four days ago, I got a plant medicine business plan on my desk for a company trying to open up a retreat and with like, Berkeley doctors and Stanford doctors, heads of bipolar trials, like literally this whole, the whole, and then you talk about CBD and THC and cannabis, and it's it just, it's, it's kind of exciting, because obviously there's something broken with treatment programs in general in the country with the success rate, and there's obviously ways we can improve upon it. I just, I think rooms like this, thanks Taylor for, for putting this together, man, because I think brainstorming and bringing people from different places, different faiths, different backgrounds is huge. And you know, anyway, thanks for uh, you know, th thanks for putting this together. Appreciate okay. it. My chairs are atrocious. I know that these are really uncomfortable. Can you just um, you can talk to them afterwards? But let me just say one more thing. Can you tell the difference between AA and ARP? What the difference is? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's confusing the different programs because you're all talking twelve steps. But and then E mingle talking stairs to my neck. I don't care. But these chairs are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I can say for ARP, you know, like it is AA. Like without Bill and Bob, without without the inspiration of that that man wrote down in his journal, and then and then with the founding hundred, you know, they got together and brainstormed what the best way. And from you know, one thing I see, you know, when I sat in an AA meeting and I read the books and I read the George, all these different literature on it is one is. If they're the same thing, except for one is like your higher power. There's no denomination because most of us, including myself, would be put off. I, I have nothing but resentment for God. 
So if I were to go to a meeting where everyone was talking about God, like, you know, in a certain way, at a certain time in my life, I would have walked right out. Like, oh, these are just religious people. Like, you know, I don't want to do that. And so, um, but for some people, if you're in the, you know, if you have a faith, then, you know, then you can sponsor. And that's kind of like what we do is with the 12 steps. It's the 12 steps just with our faith involved in it, you know? The, 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 the main word difference is probably step three. In AA, it says, make a decision to turn your will and your life over to the care of God as we understand him. And step three in ARP says, decide to turn your life and will over to the care of God, the eternal Father, and his son, Jesus Christ. And, and the next one is step five. Admit to God, ourselves, and to another human being the exact age of your wrongs. Admit to yourself and the Father in the name of Jesus Christ and a proper piece of authority and another person the exact nature of your wrongs. And then with the meetings, there's a lot less swearing and, <laughs> and no coffee there and general smoking stays outside. <laughs> but, but people who come to AA come and say, wow, this is... This is it, it feel, I mean, every AA meeting, if you go to a lot more, they have a different feel. And so Matt's ARP meeting and our ARP meeting and the one in Cycle Many, it, it teaches the same principles, but they have a little bit different. And so what I encourage is, in fact, they say go to 90 meetings in 90 days. If you're ready to get sober, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. Mm-hmm. And then, then you'll find your home meeting, you'll find a sponsor, and you'll find one where you're going to participate in for the many years after where you're doing step 12 and sponsoring other people. And that's whether you're an Al-Anon, AA, ARP, NA, SA, GA, whatever. And everyone's welcome in all of them. Yes. Right. Right. I, I sat down in the room of pastors who like typically hate the Mormons, right? And like I'm like all scared. Like I'm like, seriously, we're going to argue about the Trinity or we're going to argue about grace? War? Like seriously? Let's talk about this. And it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of stupid. Let's talk about our commonality. And what are we going to do to help people, the epidemic, and, and people of faith or without faith to overcome this? Because once they get mental clarity, then they can worry about their spiritual. We can argue about little denominational differences at that point. Get you a lot of tears. Was this a conversation that needed to happen? Absolutely. Um, am I the only one that could talk about it all night? <laughs> Not at all, clearly. But we will have compassion on you and your backs. Yeah. <laughs> Let you go home. Yes. We, um, on, on that topic, there are manuals up here, back on the, on the table in the dining area for addiction, uh, for the addiction recovery program for the church for um, a spousal support or family guide, an Al-Anon type guide, as well as a bunch of other stuff that Victor brought um, uh, from the Canyon Club. We are here um, to mingle after should some of you like to continue. But there is so much information in this room that that's why I love this meeting tonight, is that we're getting every perspective, every experience, many brave people being willing to put it out there. Uh, and so let's hear it for our panel. So, Jay, what's your takeaway of this meeting? Well, Brad, you know, I uh, it was good. It was a little, we were both a little nervous because a little out of our, uh, normally we speak in churches, right? Mm-hmm. And we have spoke, of course, in secular things. It was an unknown so, audience. Unknown audience and different format than we're used to. And sorry, that's my phone. And usually 
when we do speak secular things, we've done actually done it separate. Like I know you've spoken some things, and I've spoken at the schools. Yeah, not together. Yeah, usually when we're together, it's church stuff. So we have like our spiel. True, like, yeah. You know, like you talk about this, and we talk about how we met in the church, and boom, bam, boom. And we still did that, but we flavored it up as so that way we're not throwing out terms that non-members won't understand. I felt like it was. I, I love the feedback, but I felt it was a really good. If you're a non-member of the church. Because our question and answer after, it was yeah. very, it was, I got a lot of, I didn't know that your church had 12-step meetings. Yeah. And we assumed you don't have problems like this, like the rest yeah. of the world has. Yeah. Well, yeah, because we're held up. I mean, first of all, I felt the spirit, like we were both a little nervous, I guess. I was um, very nervous. Yeah. and then Out of my comfort zone. Out, yeah. I just felt like, you know, we didn't even know really a lot of these people. We only knew a handful. And so it was a little different. But as soon as you spoke, the spirit came in strong and then of course when I shared you you feel the spirit when you're sharing your story I was hoping he'd ask you to go first yeah I'm glad he didn't <laughs> because uh whatever you share I'm like okay I got this I know what I'm gonna say I'm listening I feel the spirit I'm remembering these things and you know I just it just felt it felt good to look into people's eyes that I could, I could you could relate and then you getting to the Q&A at the very end Victor shares were awesome of course but getting to the Q&A at the end like knowing that there's tons of people in recovery in there mm-hmm. and there's a lot of wisdom in there a lot of wisdom and people that are new and yeah. high profile or whatever in business and life and uh realize that like dude we're just we're no one's immune to this like i heard when i first came to the meetings uh james used to say this disease has no respecter of men it's probably from AA, but he would say uh, from park bench to park avenue it'll hit you like no one's immune like it, it, it can come up in any one of our lives through a loved one mm-hmm. or yourself and uh, you don't know when it's going to strike, but it's rad that we were able. I just felt it felt humbling to know to be staring at my wife through most of it yeah. and like know that like she's in the background. Like if I would have thought and it just so happens my six years coming up this next week. So sobriety. And so it was like, dude, I remember driving home to Whittier every Thursday night. Going, Picture being in a, um, a big house, Laguna Beach. Like, like to, yeah, just two people that. Uh, you have no idea who they are, and they're listening for your wisdom. Never, yeah, that's the truth. That's what I was just like. It was a humbling. It reminded me of the MTC, and it reminded me of just the humbling experiences that I've had, where the but, Lord's taken a weakness and made it a strength. Um, so I hope you guys enjoyed it. Totally. Um, I am hoping. I've asked a few people if we should do a youth one, and I've got a lot of positive. That's great. So idea, do kind of the same kind of thing with a bunch just teenagers. Yeah. And do the do a sim, similar roundtable with a lot of questions because. The Q&A is the best. I love where it. People can ask sincere questions where they're, where else do they get those questions answered? You go on the internet now and you just get a sales pitch for this. Or you don't know their motives. Like or the, talking yeah. about right. I loved it, man. Okay. Well, good job. And okay. thank you for listening. Okay.
Shelter 